I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Emma Scoville. We are here joined with special guest Anthony Pettiford. Welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We are from the National Conference for Community and Justice, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity and inclusion. Today we are going to be talking about Black History Month, and we're going to start by looking at the kind of national origins of Black History Month, which you'll find out in a moment is actually a more local national origin, actually, than you mm-hmm. might have thought. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the the local um, history of Black History, and then um, we're going to hear a little bit from Anthony Pettiford um, on his experiences. Um, so, yeah. You want to start, Emma, with some foundations of Black History Month? Yeah, for sure. So before we had Black History Month, we actually had Negro History Week, which started in 1926, and it was set for the second week of February, which is why Black History Month is in February. So the reason why they chose the second week of February is because February 12th is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, and February 14th is Frederick Douglass's birthday. So both of these days had been previously celebrated by the black community in America, so it kind of just made sense to use that date since we already had that going on. And so then Black or Negro History Week continued to be celebrated, but then in 1969, Kent State University decided that they wanted a Black History Month, so they proposed it, and in 1970, that was the first time there was a Black History Month. And in those next six years, a lot of different universities and colleges joined in in celebrating Black History Month. And then in 1976, President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month, and it became a national sort of holiday or event for the whole country. Awesome. So I found it to be really interesting. I didn't realize that Black History Month as a thing was created in Kent State. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking here in Dayton, and we're going to quickly just kind of look over some of those items that happen here in Dayton. I don't think you can have a Black History Month podcast without talking about like the redlining that we knew that we know has happened here mm-hmm. um, in Dayton. We've talked about it on podcasts before, but there are institutional things that historically and have a lot of long-lasting effects today have been put in place to limit the rights of black people. Um, so I think it's important just to, to shout that out because we know that that issue occurs. We know that it's still taking place. We know mm-hmm. the west side of Dayton doesn't have access to food. We know the west side of Dayton um, has housing problems. We know that those things exist. Um, so I want to make sure that, that we mention and acknowledge that. I think a lot of us think as far as Dayton is concerned is like historically thinking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar um, and his time living in Dayton and growing up in Dayton. Um, he was the first person of color to graduate from a Dayton public high school, which I think is really cool. Um, and also we know that his home in West Dayton was actually the first state historic site um, that was owned by a person of color. So I think that's another interesting piece of history that happened here in Dayton. Now, there's a lot of really amazing contributions and historical things that have happened in Dayton um, at the hands of people of color, and I think that those are important to acknowledge, but I also think it's important on this podcast to acknowledge the not-so-pretty history that's happened. You know, we've talked in the past about the KKK's experiences Mm -hmm. in Dayton, both this summer and, like, historically over the last hundred years. Like, we had a lot of moments with the KKK here in Dayton. Um, You know, Martin Luther King was almost assassinated in Yellow Springs. Like, we know that these things exist. There were mobs um, of pro-slavery people who, in Dayton, um, came and tried to assassinate people of color. So 
we know that these things existed, and I think it's important to acknowledge um, that those things existed as well. As far as Dayton's history, I think it's interesting. I looked on Dayton.com, and, and this will be like one of the last things I say about our history. Um, but we can actually pinpoint like the first documented black person in Dayton, which I found to be really interesting. And that was in 1798. Now, looking at history and in 1798, um, this person really wasn't referred to even as a person um, and actually was referenced as William Maxwell and his Negro. Um, so, you know, looking at 1798 and those historic pieces that have happened since then, um, if you have time, I greatly encourage our listeners to go on to Dayton.com and there's um, two timelines, one that starts in 1798 and goes through 1900. The other one is 1900 to, to, to the 2000s. Um, so definitely I would encourage people to look through those events. There's a lot of great things. There's a lot of great business owners. There's a lot of great history that happened here. There's also a lot of not so great history and it's important that we, that we know and talk about both of those. So Anthony, you want to take a second and introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Anthony Pettiford. I am currently a educator, we'll say, <laughs> at uh, Fulton Elementary in Springfield. Um, I've lived in the area all my life, uh, so for the last three decades. It's easy to say that way. Um, I've lived in Yellow Springs. Uh, I've lived in Wilmington, and I've lived here in Dayton. Oh, and Fairborn. So I kind of stayed in this triangle. Uh, and so I'm also multiracial. Um, I'm from a... Uh, really diverse family. Um, we go from one shade of the color spectrum to the other. Uh, and being, the, let's see the best way to say this, uh, being in a diverse family and being from that background, I've seen this area um, and areas around us and how it varies since we're talking about diversity and race um, on how the, just how the waterfall of attitudes towards people of diverse backgrounds are. So I think I can bring that to this conversation of those experiences. Absolutely. And, you know, as we're talking about this history and Black History Month and, and where all this came from, I, I love that, you know, Yellow Springs has really a very rich history. Mm -hmm. um, we know from people who are familiar with Yellow Springs, you may know Gaunt Park um, as where the swimming pool is. Mm -hmm. Sledding. Um, sledding, <laughs> yeah. Um, often known as a heap of what used to be garbage, right? Isn't that what they always used to say? Yep. It was a landfill. Um, but Gaunt Park actually was gifted um, to the city or the village of Yellow Springs by Wheeling Gaunt, um, who was a um, escaped slave um, who was able to get that land. I think it's nine acres and give it back to the village. Um, so there's a lot of really rich history in Yellow Springs as well. I know on last episode, we talked to about Martin Luther King's mm -hmm. involvement with the village, which was um, pretty close during the time that his wife went there. So um, a lot of area that you're coming from in that in that Yellow Springs history. So you mentioned some of the attitudes that people have, and I think mm -hmm. it's interesting from a multiracial background that you have um, kind of both ends of the spectrum, as you said, as those attitudes may be involved. I'm wondering if you have any stories that particularly stand out to you. Um one that you can have with anyone, especially with a um, multiracial background or any person of color, it's when you first realize that you were different. Um, so growing up, like I said, all my cousins look different. But to me, we I see chins. I see a chin. I see a nose. That's how I know that we all look alike. It wasn't really skin color. And it wasn't until I was four, I think, when 
we were walking and another kid uh, wanted to play basketball and we did whites versus blacks. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that we were going to, that I wasn't like everybody else. And that was until I was four. And that's pretty old for a lot of people. But I remember that being the time that I went home and I realized, because then it was, am I white or am I black? Because my dad is dark skinned and my mom is very light skinned. So I didn't know where we fit in that spectrum. And so the last, you know, 20 something years after that has been trying to find my place in and all of that. Um, uh, one thing I, I, we talked about this this afternoon at work was that uh, my grandmother is uh, a white woman from the UK. So she grew up in Liverpool and she fell in love with my grandfather who was of mixed race and they came back, they came back together to uh, the United States and started a family. And my grandma, also all my aunts and my mother are all multiracial. My grandma raised them and grew up with them and spent every day with them. And she's now in her 80s. And one day she came up and she went, you know what? I'm white. Because she had stopped identifying with what she was. And she looked at her kids. And so when she thought of herself, that's what she saw was her Mm -hmm. kids. Because if on Facebook, my grandma is always the one who's posting and sharing and talking about Black History Month. And she's a very big advocate, as most people can be. Mm -hmm. But she had a moment where she was like, huh, oh, that's right. I don't look like them. Right. But it was just an interesting moment that we had when we were talking about uh, just our family and how we saw ourselves. Because we do this every every holiday. It's we always have some deep conversation about where we fit in into society and in the community at large. Right. So let's go back to that four-year-old self, Okay. that four-year-old Anthony, where did four-year-old Anthony identify in that moment? White. It made the most sense uh, because you only, I mean, now we do a better job, but back then it was there's white and there's mm-hmm. black. There's only mm-hmm. two. We don't talk about, there's no Hispanic, there was no multiracial. You only ever heard people talk about two. Um, so yeah, growing up, it wasn't until I, you, my mom really gr- drilled in. It's you answer multiracial, multiracial, multiracial. So when on the census it said two races or more, mm-hmm. we were like, oh yeah, that's, that's right, <laughs> we're on it. Um, so yeah, growing up it was I thought I was white because that's I was lighter than my dad and my mm-hmm. dad was black. So it was a it was a strange place to be. But then as I got older, you understood that there isn't it's not black and white literally it's right. you know there's everything in between um so i think that's like an interesting question though because there's all of these terms that mm-hmm. like seem to be thrown around like you know we hear african-american we hear black we hear person of color like you know how are these terms even defined like i think a lot more people would probably define themselves as a person of color mm-hmm. than define themselves as black or african-american but i can imagine as a child that would be pretty tough waters to navigate yeah tan became a phrase that i heard a lot from people who were mixed it was oh i'm tan mm, no you're not you're not tan you're mixed and that was we but back then you had to find a place it's, it right. was that yeah. weird thing in elementary school you had to know where you were why who knows um but yeah i remember that was the big thing growing up was who will worry but yeah mixed is where everyone at this point now can identify as mixed there's you know being mixed isn't saying, oh, you're just black and white. It's, mm-hmm. are you Hispanic and Asian? Are you, a- any any mixture means you're mixed. So that's kind of an interesting thing that I talk to people about now is it's not just black and white. Because when you say mixed, you think you're a mixture of those two. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the most commonly associated phrases. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I guess we have this first 
concept at four years old. Where does it go from there? Like you come home, you're, I assume, thinking somewhat about this incident. I remember it was, I just remember the, the, the scene was I was walking down the stairs and I said to my mom, dad's black and we're white. And then though, you know, the, no, you're not. <laughs> and then we, she explained to us that mm-hmm. we were mixed and that's when we kind of went down our family tree and we kind of talked about, yeah, this is my dad's family. This is my mom's family. Grandma's from the UK. You know, grandpa was from Springfield. Grandpa had a Native American background and black, ba- it, all of it. And that's when your eyes are kind of open to our history. But I remember being really confused by, because in my mind, I saw myself the same way that I saw all my, all the characters on TV. So mm-hmm. all the Dragon Ball Z characters, you know, we were all white. We were all the same shade because I identified with what I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, there was no one on TV that looked like us. So when I associated it was with what I was seeing on TV, because um, like even Power Rangers, there was one black Power Ranger, but I didn't look like him. I wasn't dark enough. So I was closer on the lighter side. So I was white like everyone else mm-hmm. um but yeah i remember that being a big thing that you associate with which is why it's cool right now that kids are watching tv shows like craig of the creek um let's try it, even black panther and other tv shows where there are people of color or other ethnicities on screen that you can identify with because that is a very important thing to mm-hmm. especially as a young person to say that's that's me there i am that's what i associate with right yeah and i think just in my lifetime, like I can say, you know, 20 years ago, we we weren't seeing those people, right? As you mentioned, like everyone was white. Everyone mm-hmm. was this one image, this, you know, family with a mom and a dad and two children, like a brother and a sister. And um, they lived in this suburban two-story mm-hmm. household. And like, I think finally, like I think really in the last few years, we've seen more of a shift to like People need somebody on TV that they can relate to, mm-hmm. whether that be a good role model on TV that they can relate to, or even just, you know, just watching TV and not feeling like everybody is different yeah. than you are. Um, in 2010 or 2011, Brian Michael Bendis is a comic book writer, and he wrote the Ultimate Spider-Man stories, um, and that's when he introduced Miles Morales. So that's the character that we saw in uh, Into the Spider Verse. Yeah, Into yeah. the Spider Verse. <laughs> Um, and I remember doing an article for uh, one of my college classes, and it was about Glenn Beck's reaction to this character. And that's back when Glenn Beck was the big go-to person for uh, conservative thought. And so what he talked about was, like, now they're taking, you know, their, this, uh, this diverse takeover. They're changing Spider-Man. They've done this. But for me, it was really cool. It was a light-skinned character with the same haircut as me, wearing a different costume, granted, mm-hmm. but like it was seeing someone who looked just like me. And it wasn't taking over, but I remember it just being like, huh, well, this is gonna die off. This isn't gonna go anywhere. Um, and I remember just being excited and me and my brother bought every comic that came out because we wanted to go farther, but I thought maybe one day my kids will be able to watch a movie where they introduce him. I didn't think that I would be alive, or not alive, but young enough mm-hmm. to see this character on screen. And that was a really big deal. Uh, like it's hard to explain how cool it is to see that character and then the wave that came afterwards of being like oh yeah we're not afraid of this like we can put other people you know that don't look just like you know Peter Parker and you know his the stereotype of what was most commonly seen in the 50s like seen through media and so that was just a really cool thing that we can see now is that oh, there's Miles Morales, there's all those other characters. 
Right, and it sounds like you know there was some sort of uncertainty that you had as to what the longevity of this character was, and I think any time, especially when we're talking about brands that have so much money behind mm-hmm. them, um, is like what is the reaction going to be when we introduce this new character, or this new person who doesn't look the way that these people look, and um, you know, in this situation, I think fortunately it seems like that longevity has has hung on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can imagine in that moment, like it would be pretty uncertain. Like what's going to happen? Yeah. We've never seen this. Mm-hmm. And I get it. Like comic books are cool. Like we can say that now, but they weren't the best financial decision. Like they are, they're not always doing great. Like they mm-hmm. fall off every once in a while uh, on sales and things like that. So I get the idea that yes, they were afraid to make a change or to put someone who doesn't look like the majority on there because then who are they going to relate to? Right. It's all about the majority. But then you realize it isn't really so much that like the characters themselves, where are they about? That's what you identify with. And that's what pulls people in. And that's mm-hmm. why they become popular. Uh, that's why into the spider verse, like people liked it because miles wasn't just the black kid. He was a relatable kid that mm-hmm. you, that you saw. You're like, Oh, I've done that. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, he's super awkward. I've been there. I've done that super right. awkward thing. So yeah, it's just, you know, let's look past the race of it and identify. And yeah. So, let me ask a question, and this is going to – I'm not sure what the reaction will be, but mm-hmm. um, there's been, I think, especially like over the last several years, a lot of conversation like each year during Black History Month that there shouldn't be a Black History Month, that mm-hmm. like it's somewhat problematic if if like this is the one month that teachers feel like they should teach about Black History and like that we acknowledge these things. And it sounds like, you know, from what Emma mentioned that – it actually originally was a week, and then it kind of moved on to this month. Um, so I'm curious what your two's reaction is to to having a Black History Month. So yes, should it we celebrate Black History all year round? Of course, mm-hmm. but on I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Um, when we talk about history in general, it's who, the you can put a face to a giant movement. You know, we look at at, at famous car- uh, famous people in history, and it wasn't just that one person. Like I hate using Columbus for example, but he had a crew that got him across the ocean. But we always identify with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Black History, we at least can focus, or any other month that we focus on a, a group of people, and we can say, "Oh, well, this person was there." Um, so I think we do need it because we don't always get a chance to focus on the other people. Should be celebrated all year round, yeah. But we're not talking about who created the peanut butter all year round. We're not talking about the the stoplight all year round. So we get a chance to spotlight those things. So no, I don't think that we should just spend that time to focus, and that's the only time we learn it. But we should spotlight it. Like that's what it should be more than anything else. It kind of reminds me of like the idea of Black Lives Matter, how people say, well, if Black Lives Matter, then do white lives not matter? Like, no, that's not what it's about. And it's kind of just bringing about like we need to elevate everybody to the same level, if that makes sense. So Black History Month is an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's adding two to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, too. Yes. You know, and because mm-hmm. everyone will take it to that extreme where, oh, like you said, yeah. oh, no, why don't life uh, white lives matter? And they do. It's just saying that, hey, it's we're also here. You know, right. it's, you know, uh, now you'll see um, LGBTQ lives matter. Yes, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. not saying that my life doesn't matter. Or black lives don't matter or white lives matter. It's just other people exist in this realm aside from us. So, sure. yeah. So 
your father mm-hmm. was a police officer, in yeah. fact, a police chief mm-hmm. um, in a field that is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what reactions were to that, like if there are any stories or anything that happened to him as a, a result of that. Um, For my dad, I really can't speak to what he experienced because of that field. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing, but being someone of color entering that field, you try not to make it about race. Now we can, because there's social media, you can mm-hmm. get people behind you. But back then you didn't want to stand out aside from the work you were doing. So he never talked to us about experiencing any, I mean, I've heard stories about when he had to go out one time because uh, someone called the police and needed help and he went there and they said, oh, you can't go back there. Our, my dog doesn't like black people. And he, he had to wait for someone else to come because they told him that this dog would attack him. He went in the backyard because a dog could see his the skin color. And that was a big story that we heard is there were people who would deny him coming to help them because of that. Um, but he never really spoke about uh, those experiences that he experienced. I mean, I have to assume that there were several. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, he was he worked in Xenia, um, Xenia, Ohio. He's worked in I mean all over Greene County, and so yeah, there you're bound to run into uh, <laughs> a negative racial experience. Right. Well, and I think the example that you brought up is really interesting because you know, as if someone's going into the law enforcement field, we would assume that they're probably doing that to help people, mm-hmm. um, and to go to somebody's rescue, if you will and try to help them and be turned away because of your skin color. Like, I can't fathom that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, what position do you need to be in to say, no, not from you? Oh, there are nurses. Um, we used to go to Friends Care Center and we talked to people there. Um, and you'd hear stories. There were women who were nurses who worked in hospitals and someone would come up and they would refuse help from the nurse because of their skin color. Wow. It meant that mm-hmm. much that they would refuse aid <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what all those examples are. Someone could be bleeding out and they would refuse someone stitching them up because of their skin color. So they would rather die. And yeah, that's that was the world that we lived in once and sometimes might still do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's it's a strange thing. Um, I can't talk to other, about other people's experiences, but I know mine. Um, like I said, we grew up in, I grew up in Yellow Springs and I didn't really experience racism there that I could identify. I knew about race and I mm-hmm. could, I, you know, we learned about it. So I knew it, but I never felt like I was being singled out because of my race. I didn't feel that until I went to college and going to college was a huge eye opener. Um, I remember going for a run and being separated from the team and having garbage thrown at me. I remember we, I was running to the park. Someone had crumpled up. It was an old McDonald's bag. It had food in it and he chucked it out and called me the N word. And that was my like third day of college. And I remember going, I want to leave. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be yeah. here anymore because this is this doesn't happen in real life, but it does. Yeah. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that kind of crap happens. Um, and that wasn't the first or that wasn't the last experience I had with racism. And so it's out there. Um, it just depends on, on what people do with it next. Uh, do you use it as the thing that fuels the fire for you to hate other people or do you use it as a thing that you tell people about like hey this happened to me what can we do with our society to fix that mm-hmm. and i think that's a lot of the the question is like where where do we go you know we know that racism is on a rise like racist um attacks currently in our culture are like rising we mm-hmm. know that 
Um, so I think the question is always like, what can I do? Um, so this is just me talking. So there's there is racism in a rise, but it's stupid racism. All racism is stupid, but there are racists who will hate all people who are different than them. There are other racists who will like basketball and they'll like their favorite players, even if they're black or whatever. Their favorite athlete, their favorite movie star, they can still like some black people or people of color. But you know, the, but then I don't like other black people. That's that's not real. But I believe that we're moving in a direction. It doesn't seem like it right now because we live in an age where uh, we have Twitter and social media. So negative thoughts are amplified always. You know, that's why we try to. You can post like a happy video of someone helping an elderly person that gets like six shares. If you show something negative, that gets ten thousand and goes viral. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not out let's see it is on a rise visually but i think it is dying out um it is people are calling it out more and more mm -hmm. um it just i don't know we just have to be careful about how we handle it on social media because people share it all the time you, i can go through my feed right now and someone has shared something about some racist person in a store well yeah we want to bring that to people's attention but that does bring the idea that this is every it is everywhere but it's you know, a majority of everything that we see is racist. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that we need to be careful of is making everyone think that that's what we're going to come across. And I think I agree. I think the other piece of it, too, really is like what we're telling our kids. Um, you know, so you mentioned the example of Yellow Springs and like not facing a lot of racism in Yellow Springs. Mm -hmm. And I think that in general, people in Yellow Springs like are very strategic about teaching their children to be accepting of all, like mm -hmm. despite differences. Um, and I genuinely think like if you raise a child thinking that all people deserve respect and that all people um, deserve an equal chance at opportunities and, and all of these different things, like just teaching our children the way to do it, first of all, makes it so that when they are older, they are not going to be the ones in those videos. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, as they get older, they're going to start holding other people accountable and saying, like, mm -hmm. no, it's not cool that you just said that mm -hmm. or I'm not tolerating that. No, it's also just the diverse schools. Um, well, Yellow Springs was a very diverse school. Um, there was <laughs> everyone was there was someone from every group there. Mm -hmm. So growing up, that's what we saw. So and that's the thing about identifying with races, you know. It's I have a black friend or I have a gay friend or and that's, you know, you identify with those negative thoughts with your friend. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, most people who were homophobic, they'll meet a gay person and be a, have a gay friend. And then it's like, oh, that terrible thing I said would hurt my friend. And mm -hmm. that changes their view. Um, like when I went to Wilmington, my neighbor had never seen anyone of color except for on TV. And that was in 2009. Wow. Um, that's crazy. Yeah. And so that's why where, where I work, it's, you know. It's weird and wild sometimes, but all these kids grew up with each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a high Hispanic, black, white, um, you know, communities. So our kids see that. It's not like, oh, this door opened and now we're seeing a white person or a black person for the first time. Right. Um, and I feel like that's that's the big thing. Our kids need to be exposed to all of that early on so that it's not an eye opener later on in life. Right. Um, you know, treat others like you want to be treated. So... You know, isn't that the golden rule that they say? Yeah. yeah. So that's what we just need to install. Well, and I think, too, you know, like stereotypes are so present. Like everyone can rattle off the same list of these stereotypes. And 
unless you meet somebody mm-hmm. in that group and you're able to mm-hmm. to determine like, oh, that's not true what I've been hearing. You know, so if I've never met a person of color and I've heard that um, people of color are X, Y, or Z. I, and I have nothing else to prove that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, like you said, I need to meet somebody and be like, wow, those assumptions that I have been making for perhaps even my whole life, like, I need to rethink those assumptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember in high school saying terrible things. I mean, awful things until I went to college and I met people who were different from me and I went, oh, wow, that was awful. That's why, you know, I do believe that people change. Um, there are some people I don't always agree with, but it's like, yeah, eventually in life you meet other people and that changes your perspective on everything. Um, so yeah, it's just about time and, and mixing the culture, which is, that's what's happening now. Um, so when we talk about racism being on the rise, that's the other thing that's on the rise is diversity mm-hmm. and desegregation. Mm-hmm. So in our last few minutes here, um, I wanna pose a question for everyone. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about coming together and diversifying. And as a diversity and inclusion organization, I think it's really important to acknowledge um, that diversity and coming together. Um, my question is, especially in a community like Dayton, like we know that Dayton is one of the most segregated cities. You know, we have a very, um, very big divide going through our city. Um, how do we bring purposefully as a city, how do we bring people of different backgrounds together? I know there's, I mean, there's a million different ways that we could and, but I'm curious if anyone has any thoughts, like what can we do? So the question is how to fix the city. Right. Well, Um. somewhat it's how to fix the city, (laughs) but it's also like, if that divide's going to exist, how do we get the people past that divide? You know, I work with a lot of schools, um, in West Dayton and a lot of those children don't travel outside of West Dayton. Mm -hmm. And if you don't travel outside of West Dayton, how do you know anyone who's different than you? Yeah. Um, that's what I believe they were trying to do with like the flyer. I know that's more of a of a college. Um, I was gonna say I use the flyer kind of frequently. It really gets UD students like into the city to say like, oh look, the city's here. It's not just the university. There's a lot to do, a lot to volunteer with, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. get off campus. So I mean, I wish there was another flyer. I mean, we have RTA, but if we had something else that could move people mm-hmm. a little bit closer and you mm-hmm. know connect that gap. Uh, yeah, that's the other big thing. It's just, it's transportation. Not everyone is able to move around. Right. Um, and I know sometimes they don't want you to. Yeah. Um, and that was one big issue that we had with, uh, what was it? Fairfield Commons Mall. They cut some of the bus routes Mm -hmm. because they didn't want people traveling to the Fairfield Commons Mall. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that also brings up a good point is it's like, if we're going to have this transportation, so let's take the Flyer Express, for example, because it exists. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm somebody who does not have a lot of financial resources, where does the Flyer Express bring me that I can actually interact with people? It brings you to the Dragon Stadium. Okay, well, mm-hmm. what if I can't afford a Dragon's ticket? It takes mm-hmm. me to Brown Street. Well, nothing on Brown Street is that affordable. Like, where are the options for people to go and have a social event that doesn't cost them something? Where are the options to go to a large central park and have... Um, you know, all different people coming together in this centralized location. Yeah, well, we have Riverscape, and we have, you know, over the summer, it feels like every Friday or second Friday, there is some cultural festival down mm-hmm. there. And so that is another thing that I would talk about. That's a big pro for Dayton and, and, and bridging all these uh, gaps, because you can go to those festivals and you see everyone there. 
And I feel like if we had something like the flyer that brought people down for all those mm-hmm. events, yes, that there is something to do. There's the Oregon district. There's always some, not always, but a majority of the time or during the summer, there's the, um, the pavilion. I think love it pavilion. Yeah. I mean, that's free. Mm-hmm. There's things to do that Concert we can series there. Mm-hmm. There are things in Dayton for us to do that are free that people can socialize for. We just have to bridge the gap so people outside can get to it. Right. And so we mentioned on our last episode, like, it is so easy to not try. Like, it's easy to not be an ally. It's easy to stay on your couch at home. But if we are going to bridge the divide, if we are going to um, really get to know our neighbors, our neighbors who who look like us and also our neighbors who don't look like us or who don't come from the same backgrounds as us like we have to put effort forward it's not going to happen there is not going to be somebody from a different walk of life who just shows up at your door and says it's time for us to become friends um you're gonna go and have to seek that out so i think you know anthony's mentioned the cultural festivals that happen in dayton those are happening all the time um and we will do our best to keep you informed on those and even if you know, maybe you don't have the resources to go and, you know, do the food trucks and things like that. Just be there and experience um, the community and experience the performers who are at those events. You know, go to um, Riverscape or wherever you're able to go to interact with people who maybe don't come from the same background as you. Mm-hmm. So we are going to close out. Anthony, we appreciate you coming out and being willing to share with us today. Um, we're going to close out with our diversity highlight. Um, we're going to actually diver- or highlight the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. So currently, diversity and inclusion has kind of been talking a lot about mental health and the, the role that mental health has in diversity and inclusion. And it's certainly, um, to a high degree, I think, an inclusion issue. Um, we know that people who, are, um, who have mental illnesses have like a, a big problem with inclusion. Um, and I really want to applaud Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. I was in my car actually over the weekend and heard a commercial that really stood out to me. Um, and they said, you know, we know that people are living with mental illness and we want people to join the Sheriff's Department in having conversations at your home about mental illness, like in trying to have open conversations about mental illness to start to remove the stigma that there is with mental health, with addiction, with suicide, with all of these items. Um, I often say in trainings that I do that suicide is like another one of the S words. Um, People just aren't willing to say that. So I think the fact that Sheriff Streck was able to come out and and openly speak about those issues on the news is applaudable. And I really hope that people can take that commercial to heart um, and be willing to have some of those tough conversations at home. They're hard to have, but boy, are they important. So with that, we're going to close out. We appreciate you all being here. And In two weeks, we will have you all join us back um, for a special episode interviewing individuals um, about the recent 2019 summer KKK rally. We'll see you then. Hey, listeners. Join us on February 29th at Flyby Barbecue for a charity concert benefiting NCCJ. Tickets are $20, and all proceeds will be donated to NCCJ. Performers include Scotty Mays, Life and Idol, Joseph Mindy Berman, and Railroad Rosen in the Pots and Pans. To find out more or to order tickets, visit nccjconcert.rsvpify.com. Calling all high school students, NCCJ is proud to present Anytown Youth Leadership Institute. Anytown is a weekend-long camp teaching leadership skills through the lens of the isms. These include racism, sexism, ableism, and more. Our next session is March 13th to 15th, 2020. 
To find out more or to sign up, visit nccjgreaterdayton.org slash anytown. And if you are listening to this lovely podcast after March 13 to 15th, 2020, we will have more dates announced here soon. So check back to that website um, and our social media pages to get the latest news on upcoming dates for Anytown. Thank you for tuning in to Gem City Diversity. Make sure to come back next time as we dive into our next topic. For more information on NCCJ and diversity within the Miami Valley, go visit www.nccjgreaterdayton.org. Make sure to like NCCJ of Greater Dayton on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at nccj underscore of underscore greater underscore Dayton. And follow us on Twitter at nccjdayton. I'm Emma Scoville, and I was joined today by my co-host, Lake Miller, and we'll see you next time.